Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I am Katie Rich. I am here with Richard Lawson. Hello. With Rebecca Ford. Hello. And with David Canfield. Hi. Last week we were all split off into our little siloed segments um, <laughs> so we could let all the boys talk about Dune. Um, but now we're here back together. We have lots of things to talk about as usual. I do want to talk a little bit about Dune now that I've finally seen it. We want to talk about the best actor and best actress races, the state of the Oscar campaign, some more new releases like Last Night in Soho and Antlers. And we'll have an interview that I did with Fran Kranz, who is the writer and director of Mass, which is also out in theaters now. Um, but purely selfishly, uh, and also because it's in the news, I do want to loop back to Dune because uh, I finally saw it. I went and saw it in the theaters last night. Uh, definitely partly because it made some money over the weekend. And when you guys talked about it last week, Richard and David, along with uh, Chris Murphy and Anthony Bresencan, I think all of you were a little skeptical about how well it would do kind of released out in the world. And, you know, it's hard sci-fi. It was also on HBO Max at the same time. Uh, but it made about $40 million, which is less than the Bond movie made. And I had to confirm that because it felt like we were like celebrating Dune, even though it made less than Bond. But those are different expectations. Um, but anyway, Richard, how surprised were you at how well Dune did, given that you've been like, <laughs> I think for months now you saw Dune like around Venice and we're like, I don't know about this. And then it, it did well anyway. What did you think? I was pleasantly surprised. I mean, you know, look, I, I root for any movie doing well in theaters these days, you know, regardless of what I think of the actual movie. Um, and, you know, Dune is based on known IP, but it's also tricky. You know, it's dense and it's not like immediately as comestible as something like a Marvel at this point. So I think that's cool that people were into going to something that was maybe a little bit harder to uh, engage with. Um, I mean, challenging in a good way. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I still, as ever, I'm just so curious what the split is on box office and streaming, but maybe there is a happy medium that Dune has somehow found. It does feel like it's the movie people are talking about. And obviously we all have our own little social media silos. So who knows for sure. But it, it has it has cultural currency, I think, even more than I expected. David, you were also a skeptic. What do you think? Um, well, I think one thing that I was counting on in terms of if it would do well and that I'd mentioned last week was Warner Brothers really put everything behind this, I think, in a really smart, strategic way. And really rolling it out, starting in Venice, um, putting it out forward as something that was meant for the big screen and only for the big screen, even though they were also putting it on HBO Max at the same time. They they sold it the best that they could, and I think it really paid off uh, in the sense that, um, I mean, we don't know what the split is between that and Max, but people went to see it. And uh, it's in the awards conversation, and it's really well positioned, I think, um, going into the winter. And it had an A minus cinema score, which I just saw, that, which is like huge. That's impressive. For that. So that means word of mouth, hopefully, and uh, whether that word of mouth translates to, hey, go see it in the theater, or you know, it's on HBO Max, you should watch it. I don't know. Especially given that you know that cinema scores are awesome about how the audience feels at the very end of the movie, and Dune famously ends with, and now come back for the second half <laughs> that we haven't made yet. So the fact that people yeah. still like it after that is impressive. That was my big question. Was like exactly that how will <laughs> how will they feel when the credits start rolling and the fact that it did that well um given that uh, i think is a real testament to its legs as well i feel like it really um and david you were just touching on this but it it pulls in a lot of different sorts of viewers right because there are certain people who are coming um for denis and the way he makes films and then there are people who are coming for dune and the big sci-fi epic and then there are people who are coming for timothy chalamet so you know i think they did a really it's just if you're gonna be very selective about the movies you see in a theater now it feels like this is one that a bunch of different types of people would be willing to make their you know, one theater movie right now. Yeah, I was at a social event the other day with a lot of like friends, kids and stuff, and they were all excited about Stellan Skarsgård. So uh, <laughs> I think we can't count that out either. 
<laughs> I have to say, like, I had read a lot about Dune. I had heard you guys talk about it, but, you know, there's so much information, and I think it's easy to, like, remember some things and not remember others. And I had completely forgotten that both Stellan Skarsgård and Javier Bardem were in this movie. And every and when each of them was introduced, I was just delighted. It was so <laughs> great in the way that they show up in this movie. Uh, it's a real buffet of actors that you're glad to see, which I, I think has to be part of its success. Mm-hmm. And presumably those both Bardem and Skarsgård are being set up to have more to do in the sequel, which now seems more likely to happen, I suppose. Although yeah. we'll just have to see how much how much legs the movie has. Yeah. I mean, the relief around it being a hit, I think, is pretty palpable, especially. I mean, Bond did OK, but I think it underperformed a little bit compared to expectations. And for me, I think that's why we feel pretty optimistic about it in the best picture race. And David, you keep reminding me that we're back to a full 10 this year. And that 10 full 10 lineup was kind of invented to include giant blockbusters like Dune. So I, I just it's hard for me to imagine them not making space for it now. Yeah, I was thinking about that 10 in the context of both Dune and The French Dispatch this weekend, which also did, um, Mm. I think, surprisingly well. Um, And Wes Anderson, (laughs) proving his fan base will even go out for the most Wes Andersonian and (laughs) divisive in a while of his movies. Um, so, So he's another one who kind of brought that art house crowd in in a significant way when there's a lot of anxiety in the industry right now about whether those audiences are going to show up. And yeah, so those are two films that I think fit into that conversation in an interesting way. Or Chalamet Craze People just did a doubleheader. You know, uh, <laughs> that, that would be quite an evening slash afternoon. That's a lot of time. But, um, but yeah, but French Dispatch, $25,000 screen average, uh, you know, on 52 screens, which is pretty significant compared to, you know, Dune's 2000. I mean, it is interesting that Chalamet has not led a big movie ever, despite I think we all assume he's just been a movie star for years, ever since he broke up with Call Me By Your Name. But it's been a kind of more niche thing compared to, you know, the Chris's or something like that. Um, But I think now he's really properly a movie star. And, you know, I think it's about time. It's going to be interesting to see what he does next. Mm -hmm. Wonka. Oh, God. oh yes! Never, I take you it set back. that up, Katie. Not interesting to see what he does. What he does after Wonka, when Wonka is also somehow a huge hit, then he uses that to make something more interesting. Yes. Um. Well, we got a text. We have got a couple texts from listeners. Uh, with someone who was very disappointed in Richard's review of Dune, and they loved it. And I was like, "Listen, we have fans of Dune around here. It's not just Richard's be all end all." Um. But then Paul texted, and he said he thinks Dune could be a lock for at least ten nominations, uh, and listed all of them. A lot of technical ones, as you might expect. But didn't list acting, um, which is not unheard of for a big blockbuster in the Oscar race. You know, Avatar didn't get any acting nominations. Um, I mean, before I I want to talk about the best actor and best actress races. I think we maybe all agree that Timothy Chalamet is not in those races. Is is there an acting nomination for Dune that you guys see before I dash Paul's hopes? I mean, I I felt personally that Rebecca Ferguson is maybe the the best chance. I still think it's it's slim, Um, you know, when we talk more about about who she would be up against. But I feel like she was the standout that a lot of people were talking about with a role that was could have been, you know, really, really tricky to pull off. Yeah. Yeah. I could say you're getting swept up in like a SAG five if that movie mm-hmm. really hits because they tend to lean a little bit more on the general popular side. And she's definitely the breakout of that movie and, and the one they're pushing. If she had one more scene, I could say maybe a sneaky rampling supporting campaign. But mm. Uh, mm. I don't know. She's so good. She's so good. <laughs> um, I honestly, I hadn't thought about Dune at SAG, but that would be a really fun SAG nomination because it is such a huge cast. And there's not a lot of like everyone in a room together, but they all, you know, everyone kind of gets a moment to shine. They're all playing off of each other. That would be, I would be into that campaign. Mm. Uh, well, let's talk about lead actor and lead actress. And I wanted to bring this up. Um, I think we talked about supporting categories somewhat recently in the context of Belfast. And then as part of Film Fest 919 last week, I finally saw both King Richard and Spencer and also Red Rocket, uh, which is kind of more of a dark horse in the best actor race. Um, and I, I don't just don't think we've gone in depth on those categories at all. Um, so I wanted to kind of lay out where we all see the races being and maybe some of the X factors we'll still, we're still waiting for. Um, so, Rebecca, do you want to kick us off with uh, with best actor? and where things stand? Yeah, I think uh, when we're talking about locks, you know, we Kristen Stewart with Spencer has been uh, s- sort of at the front of this list for our, since uh, the film played at the festivals. And, you know, and then you have Olivia Coleman for The Lost Daughter, Penelope Cruz for Parallel Mothers. Those three to me feel quite strong as the front runners. 
And then I think there's a lot of names that we've all been kind of batting around and, and saying we need to wait and see or movies we haven't seen yet. I mean, there's a lot of good performances. I do think the best actor race is more interesting this year. But, you know, for me, I feel like those are the top three of the things we've seen. I don't know about you guys. Yeah, I think one of the big question marks of this race right now is how far um, Jessica Chastain and Jennifer Hudson can go mm. uh, for early release Oscar bait movies that were not well reviewed that did otherwise uh, aside from their performances that did not make money that were pretty disappointing at the box office but that both stars are really campaigning for and that um, are performances that you'd think the Academy would go for um, outside of the the broader performance of their films. I could easily see both of them fading from the conversation pretty fast once precursors start rolling, but I could also easily see, you know, to bring up SAG again, going for either or both of them. And I, I completely agree with Rebecca that those top three seem pretty safe. And then the two we're really waiting on are Lady Gaga and House of Gucci and Nicole Kidman being the Ricardos. Yeah. Uh, and I think that that about gives you a picture of it. And I suppose Frances McDormand for Macbeth, since we can never, <laughs> never underestimate Frances McDormand in this category. But uh, <laughs> that also is straddling lead and supporting, I believe. Well, and same for um, Jennifer Lawrence and Don't Look Up, I imagine. Another yeah. movie we're kind of have a bunch of question marks around. and But she's also not someone you should underestimate, right? Indeed. Because we have all these question marks, I'm wondering if there's a dim chance that someone like Renata Reinsva, uh, who is the star of The Worst Person in the World, the Norwegian film, who won Best Actress at Cannes. And, um, you know, normally I would think, well, Penelope Cruz kind of has that, you know, non-English language slot locked up. But, you know, there are a lot of unknowns. And um, Worst Person in the World is being distributed by Neon, which is doing a lot mm -hmm. of, like, you know, proactive awards campaigning for that film and certainly for Flea and for Spencer, you know, they have a lot in the mix, sure. So maybe they wouldn't want to like have one of their home team people compete with Stuart. But um, I think that'd be really exciting because it is, to my mind, one of the performances of the year. Yeah, I mean, this is probably something we'll get into later talking about David's piece about international Oscar campaigning, but the ish international makeup of the Academy and the more international it gets, we've seen it so often in the director race where you get a director in almost every year for a foreign language film. And maybe we start seeing that more with performances. Not You don't have to be an international megastar like Penelope Cruz to, to get recognition there. Um, in terms of narratives, which is the thing that we like to talk about and how we expect these campaigns to go, it does seem like Kristen Stewart has the strong narrative going in her favor. She's a hugely talented actress. She's revered around the industry. She's been working for a long time. She's never been nominated. I think Lady Gaga could be really interesting coming in with House of Gucci, depending on how that goes. Is there anyone else's kind of story you're looking at as seeming especially powerful for, you know, the length of a campaign? We have many months to go still. Just how much does the industry love Olivia Coleman? <laughs> how, how far can that go? I mean, that Emmy win for The Crown really surprised me and a lot of people. And it just feels like the industry cannot get enough of her. And this is a performance where she gets to show a real new side uh, of, of what she can do, which uh, she can do a lot. And um, I, the movie seems to be playing really well. And I think she she can take that appeal pretty far. question is how far? I also think, you know, when you're talking Gaga and uh, Kristen Stewart, you're talking about people who are playing real people. And that's like uh, one of the magic keys to Oscar nomination. So I wouldn't count out Nicole Kidman. I mean, we have to see how the movie movie does. Um, but, you know, again, she's Nicole Kidman and she's playing a real person we're all very familiar with. So I think that's always, you know, boost them up the list in my mind, at least. I would think the same thing for Jennifer Hudson. I think mm -hmm. for some reason, Respect seems to have more potential than Eyes of Tammy Faye, maybe because Aretha Franklin is a kind of more generally admired figure than Tammy Faye Baker. But I feel like Jennifer Hudson could just, you know, keep pounding the campaign pavement there and get in there. I'm also wondering, just because the trailer just dropped um, as we're recording, if Sandra Bullock might be in that conversation for The Unforgivable, uh, a Netflix movie where she plays a woman who's just gotten out of prison after 20 years. And to, from, judging from the trailer, it looks like she did do the thing. You know, it's not like she was in there um, as an innocent person. Um, I don't know what Netflix is going to do with that, but like, I kind of shouldn't ever count out Bullock, I guess. Um well, I was looking at the, you know, the Gold Derby expected best actress contenders we have. And Netflix has a lot this year that we'll be talking about plenty of times. But it's really only uh, The Lost Daughter, I think, that's going to be competing in the best actress race. So um, that's interesting in terms of the domination that they have. They can have all of their attention to Olivia Coleman. 
I think that they're going to try to give Tessa Thompson a push for passing. And um, Rebecca had a great piece on the diversity problem already plaguing the Oscars this year. And that's one movie that um, if they really give it a push and that plays well, could maybe hit in a few surprise areas. She was nominated for a Gotham Award um, a couple weeks ago. So uh, that's one to watch. Uh, I'm not. I'm not counting on it, but I I know Netflix is, because they don't have a lot of contenders here, I'm interested in exploring that. Yeah, I think I've been putting more hopes on um, Rishnega for for passing, but... uh, I think rightly. Yeah, yeah, but also Kirsten Dunst and Power of the Dog is a pretty strong contender there, so then you've got competition within yourselves. Uh, All right, so Rebecca, you you mentioned earlier that the Best Actor race is probably the juicier one this year, which I don't think is necessarily always the case. You know, sometimes you get a lot of, like, Big famous actors doing kind of expected things in these lead roles. Um, But I agree with you that I think the competition this year is really interesting and exciting. And there's a lot of people that I really root for that I'm excited to be seeing doing the work this year. Um, So not to make you do the exposition both times, Rebecca, but you said it yourself. (laughs) Why is Best Actor so interesting? Yeah, I feel like we talk about this every couple days with this race. And and I do think the last few years it hasn't been the most interesting race. I think the actress races have been really interesting. So because we have seen several really, really strong performances already, um, you know, you've got Will Smith and King Richard, you've got Benedict Cumberbatch in Power of the Dog, Joaquin Phoenix, come on, come on, and and Denzel in Tragedy of Macbeth. And that's already for people that feel like are delivering really great performances and also, um, you know, feel like the kind of people who get nominated for Oscars. And, And then there's sort of the next tier of people that we you know, consider strong possibilities, um, you know, Andrew Garfield and Tick, Tick, Boom, or uh, maybe, as we said, Timothy Chalamet or, uh, you Peter know, Dinklage. even Peter Dinklage for Cyrano and even someone surprising like um, Simon Rex for Red Rocket. I mean, it's just like a crazy mix of big names who get nominated for Oscars and then some sort of wild card or newer newer faces. So, uh, you know, if if I had to pick a group today, I don't I don't know how I'd do it because um, it's just a lot of big names. And I definitely I know Richard, I think, has already selected his winner, but I definitely feel like I couldn't pick the winner just yet. But it's a really, I think, exciting group this year. Richard, are you still feeling confident in that Will Smith prediction you made back at Telluride? Yeah, he's going to win. But um, let's talk about (laughs) who else is going to get nominated. Um, You were talking about narratives, Katie. And I think that there's one uh, on the smaller scale of things where an actor who's been in everything and people love in the industry and has never quite broken through into the the awards conversation is Clifton Collins Jr., um, who had a movie at Sundance Mm. called Jockey that is, Mm. you know, getting a, a, a decent best actor push already and think that'll ramp up um as the months go on i don't know if that movie is too small or too whatever um to really uh register when you know academy voters are watching screeners or whatever um but you know he is somebody who is industry beloved and i mean i i would assume just based on how much he works but so that could be an, a nice story. And and you could also maybe kind of turn that story also to, I mean, this is way more of a long shot, but someone like Tim Blake Nelson, who um, had this little Western at Venice called Old Henry, um, that's actually pretty good. If people are looking for like a fun Western, I would recommend it alongside The Heart of They Fall. But Tim Blake Nelson is great in it. It's like one of his very few starring, you know, lead roles. Um, and he's also someone who has worked, you know, in front of and behind the camera in in the industry for decades and maybe could, you know, catch the f- attention of especially maybe an older Academy voter who is um, much more uh, into Westerns than a younger one might be. Yeah, I think it's really valuable and important at this point in the race to talk about those kinds of smaller contenders because this happens not infrequently. Like you think of Viggo Mortensen for Captain Fantastic or Damien Bashir for A Better Life. Like there are these movies that feel like they're just on the fringes of everything. And, you know, maybe people really like this actor, but they're never going to get nominated. And then Willem Dafoe gets nominated for At Eternity's Gate. And you're like, OK, that is that's that <laughs> happened. Um, so you really never know. And I think it's really wise to keep campaigns like that going. And I would include Simon Rex in Red Rocket in that category who who, as I tweeted about from Film Fest 99, just really blew me away in that movie. And if they can get people to see it and want to see a movie about a washed up porn star biking around his hometown and causing trouble, um, I think people would really go for it. I hope that this category does allow for some of those names to make it through. I know Sony Classics really believes in, in Clifton Collins Jr. And um, to your point, Katie, like you could also think of someone like Richard Jenkins for The Visitor, which kind of kickstarted the era of Richard Jenkins that we now yeah. live in. But at the, at the time, he was uh, a really um, 
not well-known character actor um, who got a big breakout there. But you have so many stars competing here. I mean, in addition to the ones Rebecca mentioned, we have not seen Leonardo DiCaprio in Don't Look Up or Bradley Cooper in Nightmare Alley, which are both new films from Oscar-winning filmmakers. Um, and, Adam and Driver in House of Gucci. Adam Driver in House of Gucci. And, and um, that's just in addition to Will Smith, Benedict Cumberbatch, Denzel Washington. Um, I think Peter Dinklage has such an Academy-friendly performance in Cyrano and he has never been nominated and he's so beloved. Um, so he's really competitive. Um, it's, it's a really deep race. I find it really exciting. I, and I think it's going to end in heartbreak somehow. Um, but just the, the idea of getting some of these people in for their first nominations, like Andrew Garfield or Peter Dinklage, like, even though I agree with you, Richard, that Will Smith is going to win. Um, and I think King Richard is fascinating to talk about. And I think when it comes out, um, we should really dive deep on it because Talk about playing a real person and like maybe the most complex real person captured on screen in a long time. Um, but I still think he's going to win. And I think who's going to get in alongside him um, will be really exciting to watch. I also want to point out that there are two movies called Swan Song that have lead actors that are at least somewhat in the conversation, which is really strange to me. Um, <laughs> you know, one is Mahershala Ali, who is already a two-time winner and delivers amazing performances. So obviously I think we have to wait and see um, when that film from Apple comes out. And then another is stars Udo, Udo Kier, and I haven't seen it, but is apparently a great performance from him. And I, I was doing some research on the Mahershala Ali one, and I got pulled into the other swan song and it was a very confusing moment for me so <laughs> i really fully funny. forgot that came out this year but he's actually great in that i have seen it to make the the race even more confusing there you go <laughs> yeah uh, well david as i mentioned earlier you're working on a piece this week about kind of the globe trotting nature of oscar campaigns this year and i think i can guess a lot of the reasons why as i you know mentioned the academy is getting more international in terms of who votes for it um but in reporting this piece which i haven't read yet but by the time people <laughs> hit list of this will be online we think um we just what have you learned in terms of what everyone is having to do to really span the globe to campaign their films this year yeah i mean i think the, the calculus has changed somewhat in the past 10 years. The Academy's always been a fairly global organization, but you know this year, the 395 new members invited to the Academy, over half uh, were not from the U.S., um, which is a really significant impact on who votes for the Oscars, what kinds of films they gravitate toward, and how you campaign. Um, so we were talking about uh, Parallel Mothers and how Penelope Cruz is sort of taking a, a non-English language slot in that Best Actress race. And that's not even how Sony is approaching that film. Spain didn't select it for um, the inter their international submission. And Sony's Classics is just campaigning for that movie. Like, I mean, from a source that I heard, it's exactly like how they campaign for The Father. They're going for um, actress. They're going for production design. They're going for cinematography. They're going for picture, director. And um, it's, it's indicative of how things have shifted and how you get a movie in front of people and how they're going to view it. So yeah, it's, 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 it's changed a lot and that's one example, but you have a lot of films this year, a lot of filmmakers where the idea of just an international film nomination is sort of the bare minimum for what they're going for. Does this mean we should take little old man on the road and just do some international travel in, in the next few months? I think that sounds fun. One of my favorite details in reporting this piece out is the utter importance of taking a film to a city in Europe with 10 voters in it and putting everything behind it to make sure those 10 voters see the movie and like the movie. And so, in other words, yes, Richard, we should we should take that approach with Little Gold Men in order to, to build our international bona fides. So, David, do you think this is part of what the Academy's goal has been in terms of expanding the membership? You know, I think they were in some ways putting out a fire when they started adding to the membership because of all the, you know, well-established diversity problems. And now they're here, you know, campaigning in Singapore. Does that feel like uh, all part of the master plan or just kind of a side effect? I think it, it is absolutely very intentional on their part. And it's something that just generates less headlines for various reasons than some of the other, I think, more urgent uh, initiatives that they've been public about mm -hmm. um, in terms of diversifying their membership. Um, and it's something that people who watch the Oscars, like Rebecca and I have been talking a lot about, um, the director race and how over the last several years, um, it's it's become unusual if a, if a non-English language film is not represented in that, in that field. And so this year you have Pedro Moldovar, but also Oscar Farhadi and Pablo Sorrentino, um, who's, you know, the studios behind those films are really pushing for directing nominations. And so there, there's an understanding that within the industry that this has happened in the Academy. And I think 
now that it's popping up more nominations, more people are starting to pay attention to it, but it's been a really active effort. Um, that's the results are really showing now. This does rem- remind me that when I was at the Academy opening party, the cast of Parasite and the main producer, Mickey Lee, were, were there along with um, several of the stars of Minari. And it just felt like, you know, a few years ago, you wouldn't have seen something like that at this big Academy event. So I think you can even see the changes at, at events like that as well. And there must be yeah. residual memory of how exciting it was when Parasite won or when Yeo Jung Yoon won for Minari last, last year. Like, and also in terms of like cynically speaking ratings and you know who who is watching the show like if you bring in a global audience with like nominees from their countries or uh, you know whatever like there's there's got to be some sort of benefit in in that sense i mean just in terms of cold hard numbers yeah i think that that's another big question of this is an evolving answer to who are the who are the Oscars for? Um, because no one is expecting the Oscars ratings trajectory to reverse. Um, but there is a real opportunity, I think, in in reaching a broader film community um, by paying more attention to films that are not made in the United States, and and that is happening. And in inspiring American moviegoers to pay attention to them, you know, the extent to which Parasite, you know, penetrated audiences who might never otherwise see a subtitled film is incredible. And the Oscars helped make that possible. And I think recognizing and really harnessing that power can, you know, benefit all of us. 100%. Okay, let's go to some current releases. Um, Richard, you wanted to talk about Antlers. Um, And I, like, I know a little bit about why you wanted to talk about Antlers, but not enough to even set it up. So tell me why you wanted to talk about the new release Antlers. Well, it's mostly an unremarkable and not very good horror film um, from the director, Scott Cooper, who's done kind of a weird range of work from Hostels to uh, Black Mass, uh, the Whitey Bulger movie, um, and a couple smaller things. Um, Crazy Heart, we should credit him for. Crazy Heart, which is probably his best movie i think um although i like hostels but it's an interesting horror movie in terms of when it's coming out um it was meant to be it was filmed in 2018 and it was meant to come out i think right when the pandemic was you know shutting everything down so it's been delayed almost two years and it really shows it in terms of like it's very much a film that was made in the midst of the trump era it has all of these very obvious signifiers toward, you know, opioid crisis and economic fallout and all that, which is fine for a horror movie to delve into. But the problem with Antlers, as I saw it, is kind of the same problem of, I don't know if we've all seen the supercut that Rich Juzwiaka Jezebel did of Jamie Lee Curtis saying trauma um, over and over and over again in the press tour for <laughs> Halloween Kills, <laughs> which, you know, both Antlers and that press tour reflect this kind of tiresome thing that's emerged in the last few years that like, you know, so-called elevated horror must address, you know, some sort of deep emotional wound or some societal problem or both in the case of Antlers in order to sort of mean something. And I think that that's being inspired by Get Out and Hereditary and The Babadook and, 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 and you know, these, these, these good horror movies that like also had something bigger and deeper to say. But that takes a certain kind of finesse and a certain kind of artistry that not every filmmaker approaching the horror genre with that intention is going to possess. And I think Antlers is a really good example of what goes wrong when um, there is this kind of rotely adhered to mandate that like, no, it can't just be scary. It can't just be a monster movie. It has to talk about opioids or it has to talk about, you know, family trauma or it has to talk about, you know, the environmental collapse of the world. Um, Or again, in the case of Antlers, it can do all of that or at least can it, you know, and I just find it very exhausting. And I hope that we reach a point where we have reached a point anyway, where um, the trend is going to move back towards like, yes, we can still have some glossy horror movies that like, you know, have have that extra meaning. Um, but we can also do fun things like, I don't know, the Netflix Fear Street movies, which I thought were really fun or freaky or something like that, which have social elements to them, but they are not sort of telegraphed from the get go that this is actually about, you know, X topic. Can I ask something that will reveal how little I've been paying attention? But is Midnight Mass in that category of things that are way too weighty, or does it uh, is it more horror for horror sake? Well, that's different because it's a series A and B. Like it's like Flan- it's Mike Flanagan, so he, it's like that's kind of what he does. And I, I think that Midnight Mass, which I enjoyed, um, even though it has an incredibly bleak ending. Um, I I think that I kind of liked it for the bleak ending. Um, that that really is a drama with horror elements. I think, 
And that's a fine thing. I mean, you, you look at something like Midsommar, which Ari Aster, you know, that was his follow up to Hereditary, which I think we can source a lot of these problems to that movie. Midsommar, I don't know how to classify that movie. It's kind of a horror in that there are terrifying moments, but it's kind of a comedy. It's kind of a relationship drama. It's kind of a spiritual drama. It's a lot of things. And that's fine. But I think Ari Aster is kind of like one of our next great geniuses. I mean, he's like the next PTA or somebody like, but, and that's not, not every filmmaker is going to be that, but all, you know, horror for a long time was a place for young directors to kind of figure out their craft and, 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 and play around. And I think that's great. But now that there's this extra onus to like address some hot topic within, you know, the context of a horror film, I think you're going to see a lot more things like Antlers that sort of flounder um, and kind of, at least in the case of Antlers, risk offense. I mean, this is really using real economic and uh, public health crises as just sort of backdrop mm. for a creature feature. And I think there's something kind of cynical and crass about that. And I think, I, I hope that Antlers, filmed as it was a few years ago, represents the nadir of that. Well, Midsommar is a metaphor for how women need female friends. I think that was a pretty clear metaphor <laughs> by the end of that movie. <laughs> Yeah, well, exactly. It's that. It's 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 a lot of things. They'll and, give you a flower uh, crown. You get to dance and ditch all those terrible guys. Yeah, exactly. Spoilers for Midsommar. Um, Well, actually, I wanted to ask about the next movie we were going to talk about in this context, which is Last Night in Soho, which I also haven't seen. Um, and I know I, I get the feeling it's more of like a drama with horror elements, like what you were saying, Richard. Um, but does it feel of a of a piece with this trend at all? In a sense, in that, like, in the press tour they can talk about how it's about violence against women, which it is. I mean, that is in the story. I think it handles that topic incredibly clumsily. And, and I think, you know, it's a, it's a real uh, dud of a movie for me last night in Soho, but yeah, you know, here again, you have an example of something that could be a spooky sort of throwback, you know, someone in modern times, but also zooming back somehow supernaturally to the 1960s. Like that's a fun conceit. You could really, tussle with a lot of social issues that were pertinent in the 60s and are still pertinent now. But it doesn't have to be quite so on the nose as Last Night in Soho is, because if you're going to be on the nose, you really have to get it right. Um, and I don't think that Edgar Wright does get it right. Rebecca, uh, I know you saw it recently. Where'd you land on it? Um, I agree that with Richard that it definitely has some issues, but I really did enjoy the first half. I was really, really impressed with Thomas and Mackenzie. She was in Leave No Trace and Jojo Rabbit, um, but she definitely comes off as sort of a kid in those movies. And I feel like she really got to show off um, a more mature role and uh, a, an interesting character arc um, for this. And I I found her totally um, enjoyable to watch. And, and of course, you know, Anya Taylor-Joy is also, I think, really talented actress. So watching the two of them together, I, it really kept me um, entertained. Uh, you know, the movie gets dives pretty deep into so, in, into horror in the second half. And I'm, I don't know if I've outed myself on the podcast yet, but I'm not a big horror person. So you're I, in good company. That's our, uh, that's our trend on this podcast. Yeah. I, I struggled with that and, and I see what Richard's talking about. Um, but for me, I was having a very entertaining time, uh, for about the first half of the movie. And, and I loved how it looked and, and a lot of that. So you know, I think it, it depends what you're looking for in a movie, um, because it does feel like it's actually maybe a couple of movies in there. But, um, you know, I think if anything, it proves that Thomas and Mackenzie is going to have a really interesting career from here. Who also has a very, very small role in Power of the Dog. Oh, yeah, I, that's right. <laughs> so small that you're like, can it be? Is she? Is, is that? <laughs> I think. She's just a Kiwi actress who really wanted to be in a Jane Campion movie and would take any role to do Who can that. blame her? <laughs> um, I think that the difference between this and something like Antlers, which I admittedly have not seen, is it's not one of his better movies, but it feels like an Edgar Wright movie. It, it feels, it doesn't feel like he's stepping too far outside of what he does. But yeah, I, I agree with Rebecca. I think I liked it more than Richard, if only for um, the performances. And it, I just thought it really went off the rails and, and fell apart by the end. Do we think that's going to, I mean, it sounds like it's not going to get received on the same level as Baby Driver, which I think was probably one of his no, like bigger so. hits. Is it going to find its audience somewhere? I mean, the, I remember when the trailer came out, there was so much excitement around this movie. And, and there's obviously a ton of excitement around Anya Taylor-Joy. Uh, there are fan bases that will see it, um, but it's also the kind of specialty mid-budget release that without good reviews is going to have a tough time in this market. Yeah. I could see it becoming sort of, 
at least having some minor cult status. Like I, I think if I had seen this movie as a teenager, like aesthetically, even just that, like I would have been so taken by it. And, um, and I mean, it does look great, you know, there's no denying that, but, uh, or at least I won't deny that. Um, but yeah, so I, I think it'll, it'll have its fans. Um, it, it doesn't quite, I think access the same sort of zeitgeisty energy that rights past films have maybe just because it's set, um, you know, a lot in the past. Um, but, you know, I don't know. I, although, you know, there are pl- probably millions of people the world over who are wanting to see one last great turn from the late, great Dame Diana Rigg. So maybe, maybe that counts for something because she's really fun in the movie. Yeah, she is. Is there enough Petula Clark in the movie compared to the trailer? Because, you know, I'm a sucker for a good downtown cover. Yeah, I feel like it's in that. I feel like if memory serves me, it, that song is in the movie a lot. OK. Yeah. All right. Good. All right. I'm in. That's all I needed to know. <laughs> Um, well, one more new release I wanted to talk about, new-ish release, I guess, um, to lead to the interview I did with Fran Kranz is I, I, we've talked about Mass at various points throughout the year. It was at Sundance. Um, but I think now it's in theaters. It's it's doing reasonably well in its limited release. It's a pretty somber movie, which is uh, maybe credit that people are going to see it at all. Um, and there's a real supporting actress campaign, I think, for Anne Dowd at this point. And David, you talked to her. I think you guys met up and hung out in person. What a, what a treat. Did we Did we ever? <laughs> did you have like an epic afternoon with Ann Dowd? Uh, downtown LA. She's getting ready for the Emmys. We had, we had a lovely afternoon. That sounds delightful. Um, so I talked to Frank Kranz about that campaign a little bit, and he, I think, expressed some of the the uh, misgivings you'd imagine where he has this movie with four really strong performances in it and almost equal parts, and she's the one who's getting all the attention, um, but kind of understood the logic behind it. So, yeah, do we, how do we feel about um, Mass as this kind of, like, long-shot contender? Like we were saying about the Best Actor race, these small movies can sometimes pop up and surprise you. Do we do we think Anne Dowd is going to go all the way here? I feel like it's a sort of classic pandemic <laughs> casualty in a lot of ways, and I say that as someone who really, really liked this movie, but... I mean, I remember in January, uh, I was able to get a few of the films for Sundance in advance virtually, and just the experience of sitting on my bed, having that movie on my laptop, um, and it's such a difficult, um, at times excruciating watch, um, to its credit, yeah. um, but it, you know, it was, it was a virtual Sundance debut. It is not a movie that I think benefits from that kind of viewing, um, because it's one that I think I and spoke about this, you know, you want that experience in a theater where you get to sit with it a little bit. And, and now being a small specialty release at a time when those films are not getting a lot of play um, or some of the, a lot of those audiences are not ready to go back to theaters yet. Uh, it just it feels like it hasn't been able to get its due. Um, but I completely agree uh, with with Fran's point. I mean, I think Anne Dowd's fantastic in the movie, but I I think Martha Plimpton has probably what was the most affecting moment to me in it. She's really extraordinary. And when I saw it in January, I thought, oh, Jason Isaacs is going to get a Best Supporting Actor campaign out of this. That was my main takeaway. So I mean, uh, it really, and Reed Burney was the only one to get a Gotham nomination of the four. That, so it's that like was you, crazy. That really surprised me. <laughs> you yeah. can really take your pick. I mean, but it, it does have four great performances. And I think for what it is, I mean, I saw a lot of comparisons to something like Carnage, but it's actually a really sensitively handled um, and just beautifully acted piece that, um, may not go the distance for an award season. The big challenge for Mass, um, at least anecdotally, is when I talk to people about it and I say, you know, you really should see it. It's really good. It is a difficult sit, but it's worth it, is people I know without children are like, okay. People I know with children are like, nope, I could never watch that. <laughs> yeah, And I totally understand that. It is about a horrifying thing that happens to, well, two children, I mean, and more. Um and and it, that might be enough to just put people off. Though I, I went to, I guess, what was ostensibly the New York premiere of the film a couple of weeks ago um, at the Metrograph. And, um, you know, the cast was there or some of the cast and Kranz was there. And, you know, it was a lot of friends and family, re- warm reception before this film screened. And then, you know, people seemed very wrapped as the movie played, sat during the credits very somberly while applauding. And then there was a reception afterward. And so people milled upstairs, you know, kind of made their way upstairs and it was kind of quiet and awkward. And people were like, well, that was such a heavy movie. We don't really know how to react. But then, you know, 10 minutes later, everyone was just kind of in the swing of chatting away about, you know, whatever industry bullshit we always talk about. (laughs) And I think that might be a good sign for the movie that like, yes, it is a really hard sit, but like it is pretty quickly able to be processed, if not in terms of like it's really heavy themes 
how well executed it is, you know, is a point of conversation. And you can appreciate this acting on technical levels. And um, even if the subject matter is incredibly, you know, um, hard to grapple with, you can kind of almost in a strange way, put that aside and just focus on how well made the movie is. Yeah, that's a really good way to look at it, that like there's reward in it, I, even if you're you kind of feel like you're going to all these dark places, like the the artistic enjoyment, even in something hard is is something worth finding in it. And I guess that happens a lot of times in these awards movies we talk about where it's like, OK, it's really sad, but, you know, buckle up and it'll be worth the wait. Yeah, it's like seeing a really good, difficult play and, and walking out of the theater really kind of rattling from what's been spoken about, but also just how well done it was, you know, and I, I think that that energy hopefully can carry mass to uh, nominations that I think it really deserves. I mean, we're talking about acting, but I would, you know, I would love for Kranz to get in there for screenplay as well. Yeah. Well, then I guess that's a good time to listen to my interview with Frank Kranz. I was on the Zoom with you guys. I think it was Ann Dowd's birthday that happened during Sundance. Um, and everybody hopped on Zoom to kind of sing happy birthday. And it was so sweet. And I was, you know, having my own weird virtual Sundance and yeah. seeing kind of, I think all of you guys were hadn't seen each other even on Zoom for a long time. Do you just remember what that feeling was where you're celebrating on a computer the premiere of your movie that's happening kind of everywhere and nowhere at the same time? Yeah, it's so funny because initially... Initially, it was just I was just overjoyed getting the call. It was a Zoom. Tabitha Jackson, you know, it, it, they they tricked me. They played a little trick on me, which I think they did to all the directors. Where I got a text from Tabitha, you know, and I'd never spoken with her, and she says, "Fran, we need to ask you some questions." And I just assumed, okay, this is sort of I'm in some final stage here. They uh -huh. want to know a few things, so I was so nervous. And then our sales agents, uh, CAA Gersh, this Nick Ogioni at CAA, was like, "You need to call her right now," you know. And it, it was sort of like, "Oh gosh, like I can't say the wrong thing. What is it?" So I got, I was able to sit down and, and zoom with her. And she, you know, she's like, I, I need to ask you um, a series of questions. And the first one is, would you accept an invitation to the 2021 Sundance Festival? <laughs> <laughs> so like, I was, you know, like crying. I was like, so, so it was so amazing. But then there was that come down over the next couple months where you'd have that moment of, oh my gosh, I'm not, this, this is not going to be at the Eccles theater. This is not going to yeah. be, it's not going to be that thing that I've experienced that filmmakers dream of. And, and it would, you would get to you. And yet the day of somehow none of that seemed to matter. Yeah. I look back at Sundance as being such an incredible, special experience where I felt so connected to the events and to the organizers and programmers and the audience and my friends and the crew. I mean, I truly, it, it worked. Now, it was a different experience, of course, and I, I can't speak to what it might have been like live. And I, I sort of walked away from that Sundance determined to make a, a Sundance movie that I could go. I started writing a screenplay that I wanted to shoot in Utah. I wanted to have, you know, there's studios in Park City. I was going to shoot down in Provo, the exteriors. Like I really was, wow. I'm, I'm going to make up for my virtual experience by, I'm just going to shove this in their face. You know, this is the Sundance movie. Um, so so it's sort of, if I'm being totally honest, it's still a bit of a mixed bag where I go, you know, I go back and forth thinking I had the most beautiful weekend, you know, sort of celebrating the movie and pr promoting the movie and watching movies myself. And I, I, I was joking with the programmers how I couldn't get that waiting room music out of my head. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like the festival bumpers, but the yeah. the virtual version. Yeah. So I, I, I loved it and it it went so well the response was so good the, in that initial, that day of the screening, whatever, whatever it was, I'm embarrassed, I can't remember. I think it was on a Saturday or Sunday, but um, Saturday afternoon. But it was wonderful and to be with Anne and to see everybody, to see people, you know, from development to post and people that had never met each other, kind of everyone sort of experiencing sort of what this is, the crew. Um, it was beautiful, but... Uh, 
Yeah, then the movie was a tough sell. And then there, then that was another big come down hangover. Yeah, because it sold in July, right? It took a couple months. It took, well, we were sold earlier. They probably announced in July. Oh, sure. But it was, um, you know, there was that whole moment where everyone's saying, oh my gosh, we got, you know, 100% on Rotten Tomatoes or whatever, you know, 90 something, you know, as it as the, the days went on, people kept calling me saying, you must be on top of the world. And I couldn't sleep. I, le- I literally was, I was so stressed out because I put much of my own money into it. You know, I was sort of the lead financer of this movie. And all of a sudden I thought, oh my God, it's not, it's, no one's, no one's making an offer. And, uh, you know, I'd seen like the Coda $25 million Apple deal. And I thought, oh, wow, we're going to, we're going to do well. And then to, yeah. to hear nothing and then to have the sales agents who 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 were honest and said, Fran, this is it's harder than we thought. You know that that whole moment of oh my god, what's when you know that that was scary. <laughs> yeah. So so, but eventually things turned around, of course, and we finally you know found Bleecker Street, who uh, who's who's been incredible. I mean, I, I I can't. They are really going for it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and now you're getting to see this movie play in front of audiences, which back in January, like. We didn't know if movie theaters would ever come back and it's playing festivals, it's open in theaters. So are you getting finally that catharsis of like, here's my crowd responding to my movie? Yeah, we had, so we had a premiere, sort of a proper premiere screening in New York on, uh, what was it, October 5th, I think. And I I think I was so nervous. I'd just come from acting on this TV show. I'm doing a show about Julia Child for HBO Max. And I I was kind of just getting my sea legs or sort of settling into it all. So I was kind of like a bundle of nerves and it was difficult to appreciate. I also sat through the movie and thought, oh, my gosh, this is this is a lot. You know, this is a lot to do to people and <laughs> was very self-conscious. So it was sort of a strange experience. It was wonderful and it was a celebration. But there was something I'll, it just it was it was I was in my head. And I'll tell you, we just went to the London Film Festival and I walked into that screening to make an introduction and it was completely full and it because the Bleecker Street premiere, you know, there was limited capacity in New York and Los Angeles. There's limited capacity for COVID. London was just full. And that that's when it really hit me. I felt I got emotional on stage. I mean, I'll get emotional talking about it now. But that that idea of just, you know, it's a, it's a, like a young filmmaker's dream to see their movie in theaters. I mean, you talk about this movie being a hard sell, which I think is, I, you know, I, as I've told people to see it, I've experienced being like, well, it, you know, it sounds really sad and it is sad, but it's good. And you are making this movie happen from the ground up. When you're making an indie film, you just have to sell it over and over and over yeah. again. So what, what was the process for you in pitching it to people? Did you kind of perfect a one-line thing? What was it that got everyone to kind of see that this was not just some huge downer, but a, a but a movie? Yeah. I, it's, it's, it's funny. I, 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 I never I never had any question about how it needed to be presented in terms of this has to be a real time conversation from the very beginning. It was I don't want any music other than the practical music of the piano lesson in the choir. Um, I just I, I, I want to enter the room in real time and leave when the characters leave. The, the audience has to be stuck in the room because we have to we have to see the work that they do. We have to live through it and feel the sort of strength and the endurance and the exhaustion and the challenge of, of all that they do because to to have any conveniences of film would to, would be to undermine the, the extraordinary thing that these people do and, and I'm speaking generally about anyone that meets in you know face to face with people they disagree with or feel blame or hate towards and work through that to find some kind of common ground or forgiveness is is extraordinary I felt like we it was something we need more of today in this country and so I, I, I it was it was just, it was critical that we just don't compromise that vision so of course it, I mean, everyone, even people that supported that idea still said you you should just consider, you know, you should never just don't don't close the door on these things. Just always keep an open mind. Um, and then the people, the more critical people would say, you can't do this. You just can't do it. You got to have flashbacks. You got to have whatever it is, inserts, something, something more poetic to kind of make this more cinematic. But I don't know. I, I sort of I sort of stuck with that. And I, I said, look, if, if, if the conversation is compelling enough, people will sit through it. And we had this, you know, log line. And, and I don't mean to uh, use this sensationally or I, I hate to sound insensitive, but the log line, you know, the parents of a school shooter meet with the, the parents of one of their son's victims. 
it's striking. It, it's a yeah. bit disarming, and and I I would say that to people, and I'd say, look, you're you're interested. Like, that yeah, I, we're all that that we want to know how and what happens in that room. So so just let's let's have faith, you know, and let's have faith. If you think the script is there, let's have faith, and let's find the actors, and let's let's see it. So it was, you know, getting people on board with that. There were few and far between, right? But I I got the the right people in place. My cinematographer. Brian Jackson Healy, you know, uh, was someone who could, if I started to stray from the path, he was able to remind me, you know, that if there was a moment, um, you know, the, 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 there's a giant cross on the wall of this parish hall. And we, I, I asked the church about taking it down. It was bolted into the wall. It was going to be a huge thing. And Ryan just said, Fran, it's, you know, embrace discomfort. Like that is our mantra here. Like we're embracing discomfort. That's what these characters do. The room is the room. When did you come across, I kind of think of it as bookends with Rita Wool uh, in this movie where you yeah. start with her and you end with her and it opens up the movie and it's funny and really real, like the the very boring logistics of where to put the chairs in the room. And I feel like it does something with the really high stakes emotion of the middle meat of the movie. And I wonder when that came as part of the story and why it felt important to frame the movie with that. Yeah, I, uh, a couple things, I guess. And I and I, I have trouble conveying this. So you'll tell me if this makes any sense or if you sort of uh, understand. I, 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 think it, I think it works. You know, whatever it is, emotionally, I, I think people, when those parents arrive and when that door closes, you're in a place. You know, I think the I think for the most part, most audiences seem to be so on edge and so gripped by the situation when you reach that point that I think the opening does its job. Quickly, I just, I love the notion of people helping people. You know, I had this meeting, but I also thought, how did these things get organized? You know, it takes, it takes people, it takes help, you know, that, that you need some other people to think of things like food and water and location and, and the setting, because for the parents, some of those things might be too difficult. You know, it's it's like we need to help these people. So I, I I thought that was kind of a beautiful thing to just have in there. The other thought, the the, the real reason, was I I worried because people had even pushed back on this. You know, they they said, why not just make this a forehander? You know, what 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 is this? You know, and why not have them get up in the morning and let's follow Richard and Linda and have you know you'll still have mystery. We won't know what they're doing. And I I just felt very strongly if this movie is just these four parents. And again, I don't mean to sound insensitive, but it, it's almost like going to the zoo and looking at animals that they're just these damaged people in a movie and we get to go home and we just get to watch pure fiction and it, it might make us sad. It might make us think, but we're, we're safe. We're really safe from the story and we can't be as empathetic or as connected to it because we, we don't get any sort of bigger picture of the world. So I really believe that we have to, if we open this movie with ordinary people or more people more like us in the sense that most of us haven't experienced unimaginable tragedy, if they feel more like us and even maybe a little silly or quirky or incapable, if we also even get the opportunity to laugh at them a little bit and sort of judge them as sort of being, you know, not necessarily very good at their job or what is this situation and, you know, these, these sort of kind of sort of the, 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 you know, bumbling, foolish church lady and this kind of this kid who, you know, may or may not be stoned, you know, <laughs> like, you know, that, I, I love this idea of just making the audience comfortable. The sort of suspense and mystery would be in there and we wanted to shoot it in ways that would make you kind of lean in and be sort of discerning about the story with just sort of the frame. I thought very wide static shots might make you sort of I feel like it, it sort of forces the audience to sort of study the frame, sort of study the world and think, what, what is this? What am I getting myself into? Um, but, but it is that notion of I'm going to introduce you to people more like us, a world more like ours, and then you will be blindsided when the movie really reveals itself and that the, yeah. when these characters arrive and we meet real tragedy and we meet real trauma – that it will it will be far more devastating, but also 
we will connect with them because we have, we have connected with the world. We are happy and comfortable in this world and we're enjoying ourselves so that when these people enter, they are, we imagine like us as well, but we know that something else is wrong. And I just, I just believe it cultivates a greater kind of empathy. The inside of this church is so evocative to me and like not all churches are the same, but this church is like a lot of churches that I know. Like I felt like I could smell it. Like I knew those chairs. Did you grow up in a church? Did you have any personal reference for these kind of spaces? Yeah, I was I was raised Catholic. Um, I was born in L.A. and then my family moved to Washington, D.C. My dad was working in the government and uh, we were right outside of D.C. and we would go to this Catholic church. I went to Sunday school. My brother and I sort of kicked and screamed and we didn't want to go. And when we moved back to Los Angeles, it, it just I, we, it just faded away a little bit. And I'm not religious. Um, I've sort of recently enjoyed going to churches and, and hearing sermons that are, if they're good, you know, I, I've, I've kind of come into a place in my life where just spirituality is important. So I, I kind of enjoy houses of worship and the idea of sort of rituals and community kind of like the experience of it. But again, I'm not religious. I don't, there's not a monotheistic God in, in my mind. And, and, but, but nevertheless, this was sort of my, my childhood. And this is sort of these formative years. So the church was comfortable for me or sort of where my head went, but I felt it was necessary to have some spiritual setting or, or, or a house of worship is a place where I believe that a meeting like this would happen. But it was also important that this can't be some church that looks like a concert hall. You know, this, yeah. this isn't happening in some fancy place. And I, and I wanted to sort of deconstruct the functions, I guess, of a church in the sense that, yes, it can, it can do, it has these things and, and rites, and this is Episcopal, so it's, there wouldn't technically be a mass, you know, a celebration of the Eucharist that way. It, it, it's, it's, this is different, but I also, I was really interested in bringing out what other roles churches have now as they sort of are going out of business, you know, and sort of having to kind of reimagine their role in society and community. So there's the AA meeting, the Al-Anon meeting, the, the, the church lady, Brita Wool mentions, you know, most people go up, go up North and, but we still find plenty of things to do. This sort of idea that there's probably a much nicer church. And if you're going to bother going to church, you probably want to go to the, the nicer one up, up, the, up the road, you know, whereas they it's this this is this very modest place that probably has, you know, quilt club meetings and, you know, struggles for donations. Like that's where I wanted it to take place. I, I, I tried to make little references that sort of God was not present that day, that the reverend is not there. They're in the parish hall, a sort of secular space where they're doing you know, human work. Uh, mm -hmm. The room is very much a place and the conversation is very much a place where just people, people here on earth are working through their problems. But I love this idea that, especially the structure of the church, the, the, the basement and the parish hall is sort of separated. And then there's the basement. And then finally the nave is up above. So that there's almost this sense of, you know, spirituality or whatever this relationship one might have with the unknown or sort of the mystery, mysterious forces of the, of the life and the universe, whatever these things are, you can choose to have a relationship with it if you want. It is available. It is right around the corner should you choose to look at it or think about it. But otherwise, we are human beings working through our own problems in our own lives. And I, and I, I, I'm sure this is lost on people, but for me, I, I love that church. At first, I thought this church is way too weird. Where is it, by the way? Uh, uh, Idaho, Sun Valley, Haley, Idaho. Ah, Man that Man. mountain outside is so striking, and I was trying to place where that could be. Yeah, yeah, and, and that was right up the road. And um, I just, yeah, at first, I, but I struggled with the stairs, and then the, I thought, this is so weird. And then, uh, no, it hit me. I was like, no, this, this is sort of perfect. Like, you've always wanted to make sure these spaces of the sort of sacred and profane are, are separated. And that, you know, there's a character in the film that seems to be an atheist and he's offered an opportunity to sort of see more, but he can't do it or says no. And, you, you know, these ideas of, and my hope is the audience walks away 
and they can ask themselves, you know, what is, what is my relationship with spirituality or a higher power or something outside of myself? You know, how do I see myself in this world and how do I, how do I handle these bigger questions of life and death and, and forgiveness and reconciliation? So you've had this really overwhelming year, as you were saying, like, you know, the ups and the downs and like getting this movie out there. And now the movie is out and Anne Dowd, I think in particular, is on this pretty, you know, visible uh, wars campaign circuit. You know, she has she is the person who a lot of people are zeroing in on. Like, how are you feeling at this point about being a filmmaker, about maybe doing another one of these? Where are you in the roller coaster of emotions? Of this? It's exhausting. It's emotional. I, I feel like I have a knot in my stomach I've ha- or I've had one for three years. It feels like a heavy weight, this movie. I have a lot of insecurity and concern about the real communities and the real survivors, real families, because I don't have a, any direct experience with this. I've had the, the real honor of meeting people over the course of the journey. And I, I met a parent um, and the other week in New York, who lost a child um, at Sandy Hook. You know, I've spoken with uh, mothers that lost, or a woman that lost a brother, and a mother that lost a son, and other gun violence, uh, and another situation of gun violence. So, so, and I've spoken with journalists, but I worry. I, I don't know. I mean, today is sort of a more national release, and I don't know. I just don't know what to expect, and I feel this emotional. Um, burden is the wrong word, but but just sort of a responsibility to sort of push this as hard as I can, promote it as much as I can. But I'm. It's also coupled with this kind of fear of you know what 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 have you just done, and are you a spokesman for any of this? No, probably. You know, so so while I want to sort of speak passionately and from the heart, I of, I often sort of find myself thinking, shut up, don't get off your soapbox. Do you ever wish you just stayed acting and spoken other people's words? I, I told my manager, they were out in London and, um, you know, I said, I have this dream that if I ever make a movie, I will do no press. I will just go disappear. <laughs> Be Terrence Malick. Just put yes. your movie out there and vanish. And just vanish. No, I mean, seriously, <laughs> I, I, but, you know, you can't, something like this, you, it, it, it doesn't work that way. I feel like, especially if you're going to try and, put something out that where I am, I am, I I do want people to sit and think we don't see enough of this. And this is this extraordinary circumstance and this meeting, but it, it, maybe it shouldn't be, maybe this should be more ordinary. Maybe our leaders should come to the table like this. Maybe we can do it with our own family members, neighbors, you know, the country feels so divided. We, we've gone in, in different ways. You know, we, 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 currently it's sort of vaccines and, and masks, but I, I, I thought about, you know, we were sort of editing or going through color and sound, you know, the summer, after, you know, with the, after George Floyd was murdered and the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa kept coming up on the news. I want to know how to do this, but just thought, you know, maybe there's something, maybe there's the, the elements of this that, that could be helpful for this country if we sort of knew how to talk about it. Uh, I mean, you mentioned Anne and the, you know, the Oscars and all these this this stuff, and I try not to pay attention. You know, it, Anne is sort of Anne sort of feels like someone who's due. You know, she's in that cultural conversation and Handmaid's Tale, and she's incredible, and she's been around, and she's the kindest, most empathetic actor I think I've ever known. She's sort of this open channel with her emotions and with character, and she's just incredible and deserves it. And then at the same time, I have four incredible actors in this movie, you know, with four equal size roles. Yeah. Uh, You know, they've sort of been submitted as supporting actors. So, you know, it kind of hurts me to think these four are competing with each other or there's not enough room to sort of recognize them all or honor them all. And I, I wrote these characters, you know, as myself, you know, I sort of, I, I, I fought for each of them. I believed in each of them. I, none of them were bad. There's no antagonist. I had four protagonists. I had four people I believe were good human beings with under tragic, these tragic circumstances. And obviously speaking more towards the parents of the shooter, Richard and Linda, you know, I, I just didn't find in my research, at least in my research, I'm sure there may be exceptions, but the parents I read about, they, they just reminded me of any parent who just loves their child 
but loses, you know, the, the sort of messy, complex parental love or human love that's just, just causes problems, you know? And I, I felt it with my own daughter immediately that I'm going to, I'm making mistakes every day. I can't, I can't do this right. And all I want to do is be the best for her and do, and give her everything. And so it's, it's fucking tragic, you know? And I, and so I would see that more than anything, parents desperately trying to do a good job. So it's sort of hard you know, it, 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 there's a part where it's hard to sort of say, oh, shoot, you know, the, the legacy might not be these four beautiful actors doing a thing. You know, it might just be one person sort of gets recognized. But at the same time, the fact that, you know, this little, you know, what started as a $250,000 movie <laughs> might win and might get an Oscar is just as a joke, you know. So, you know, you go back and forth, whereas I, I love my ensemble, but Anne is also someone that just deserves it. She just has been around and it sort of feels like her time and, and, uh, and all the best to her. It would be absolutely amazing to witness that. I mean, uh, Nightmare Alley. I mean, there's so many uh, just giant, great movies coming out. So to sort of uh, to, to, to even be kind of remembered and sort of in a convert, like to be here with you talking about this. I just I, th- that is amazing, you know, but um, no, there's no doubt. You know, you get Anne mentioned and you can't help but think, all right, well, that's it. You know, that, that we need that. That's our goal. Our goal now yeah. is the endowed Oscar. <laughs> and, he, and trying to remind yourself that the legacy was never anything like this for this film. So, you know, kind of, kind of, you know, going down in reality and then also sort of, you know, fighting, fighting for it. Yeah. I mean, like, hey, if we got a shot, I'm going to give it everything I have to, to get it. That does it for this week's show. You can find us at VanityFair.com. You can find lots of writing about Dune and about Last Night in Soho and Antlers and Mass and all kinds of other stuff. Uh, you can also sign up to or see text from us and text us back at joinsubtext.com slash littlegoldmen or text us at 213-513-7201. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow us on Twitter at littlegoldmen or on our own. I am at Katie Rich and Richard. Rylaws. And Rebecca. Becca M. Ford. And David. David Canfield, 97. This week's episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs, and this week's award for the best reason to submit to an interview on Little Gold Men goes to Rebecca Ford. One of the magic keys to Oscar nominations. <laughs>